Good afternoon, Storehouse. If you would please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. If you are new, my name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't catch Chewy, we're going to find ourselves in John 17, and we're looking at verses 20 to 26. And so while you open or load your Bible, just a couple of quick updates for you. The first one is, if you are new, man, let me invite you, let me encourage you to fill out one of our Connect cards. On those Connect cards, it gives us an opportunity to learn how to pray for you or to hang out with you, whether it's to take you out to lunch or dinner or coffee. So let me invite you to to fill one out and leave it in the foyer at the Connect desk. In addition to that, One of the things that we love doing here at Storehouse McAllen is hooking you up with free resources, whether it's on some of the classes that we're teaching or on some of the series that we're preaching through. If you visit our website, when you get a chance, you will find a ton of free content out there. Our goal with this content is for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus as you grow in your faith through God's word. Or if you're a skeptic and you're beginning to ask some questions, there's a bunch of free resources on our website for you to download. With all that being said, let's dig into our time. I don't know how many uh, films you watch, but in the movie Lincoln, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis plays uh, President Abraham Lincoln. And there's this one scene where him and his team are discussing and arguing about the introduction of the 13th Amendment and abolishing slavery. In this scene, as they are uh, arguing and discussing and going back and forth, Lincoln, as played by, by Lewis, pushes and he corrects and he rebukes his team because they're arguing about the Constitution. And here's what he says uh, regarding this 13th Amendment. He goes on to say, we've stepped out onto the world stage now. Now, with the fate of human dignity in our hands, blood has been spilled to afford us this moment now. And you see this conviction come out of Lincoln. You see his team kind of shut down and realize where they've been. And, and this sharp rebuke to his team is to remind them that, that the entire world is watching them and the decisions that they make Their decisions are going to say something about his credibility and the fact that at the time we're entrenched in a civil war. Their decisions are going to communicate something for the rest of history in this scene. 
Well, in our final week of what is known as the high priestly prayer, we've gotten a front row seat at the heart of Jesus in prayer as last week we examined how he prayed to the Father for himself and his immediate disciples. Today we're going to consider his last petition to the Father, and that is the heart of Jesus for the church, for you specifically. And just as he knew what he was praying for concerning the disciples, he knows exactly what he's praying for right now in this section, and that is unity. See, the pursuit of unity with one another will, does, and has communicated something about what we believe about Jesus. The entire world has been and is watching us, and the blood that has been spilled to afford us this moment of proclamation is the blood of Christ for us. See, it's the blood of Christ that has redeemed you and I. The blood of Christ is what has purchased us out of our bondage to sin and has given us new life. And so I want to be honest as we talk about unity And I'll be honest by giving you this really, really brief story. I had this one strength coach tell me once as he was writing a program for competition, and I was looking at it, and he goes on to say, listen, Marco, it's going to be really simple, but it's not easy. Unity in the church is like that. It's similar. It's simple, but it is not easy. But more than that, and here's your main idea, more than that, unity in the church is not a preference. It is a proclamation. Unity in the church is not a preference, it is a proclamation. In our time, I want to preface by saying that I know that the outcome of of, of unity in the church is difficult because there's so many different factors to navigate through. Everything from hurtful experiences to our own sin that disrupts unity. However, at the same time, I also want to point you to the one who empowers us to pursue and proclaim unity because of his prayer here in John 17 and his work for us on the cross and in his resurrection. So then, to that effect, let me pray, and we'll look at these final verses in the high priestly prayer. God, we want to begin uh, by making much of your goodness and your grace. We thank you for this gathering this afternoon where we get to sing songs about your name, where we get to exalt Jesus, and where we get to be shaped by grace through your word. We are so thankful for your goodness, and we know that that's not enough, but it's what we have. This afternoon, as we examine John 17, Lord, our simple prayer, our simple request, our simple petition is that your word would be sweeter to us than the taste of honey. To those who know Jesus, Lord, I pray that, they're, um, that they would come to know Jesus better. To those who don't know Jesus, I pray that they would come and know him this afternoon. We ask all this in your name, in your name alone. Amen. Well, like last week, I mentioned that we could spend weeks on this prayer, but for the purposes of this series, we're tackling it in two weeks, and we're primarily looking at themes within this prayer. As I mentioned earlier, one of the key themes in this portion of John 17 is going to be unity. And in the event that you weren't here last week, let me give you a little bit of context concerning John 17. Jesus is praying this after he and the disciples have had their final meal. Uh, 
Judas at this point has already left to go and betray Jesus, and this prayer is taking place hours before Jesus' arrest that ultimately leads to his crucifixion. And so Jesus concludes this portion of the prayer by praying for you and I. As we look back to almost uh, a little over 2,000 years, here's Jesus praying for you and I. And I'm only going to read a couple of these passages or verses just to give us a little bit of, of context. And so beginning in verse 20, he goes on to say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is thinking about you as he makes his way to the cross in our place and for our sin. When he writes, I do not ask for these only, in other words, he's saying, or as he's praying to the Father, he's not just praying for the disciples, he's praying for the church, to those who will believe, to those who will receive salvation through grace by faith in him. Over and over again in John 17, Jesus repeats that he's praying for the ones whom the Father has given him. These are those who come to faith in Jesus. What Jesus is about to encounter through the, crucifixion, through the crucifixion is sufficient for all to come and know him, but it is effective only for those who turn to him in faith and repentance. So he's not just praying for the disciples, he's praying for us, the church, and he continues in verse 20. I do not only ask for these, but also those who will believe in me through their word. He's referencing the disciples who become the apostles and how they begin to spread the gospel and the birth of the church takes place in the book of Acts. And so he's praying that man, the word would spread and that the disciples would uh, uh, continue to share the gospel and that people would come to know Jesus through it. And he continues, that they may all be one, just as you, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in, in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That little phrase, that they may be one. Unity is the byproduct of being planted in Jesus through God's word. Last week in verse 11, one of the things that Jesus prays for is for the disciples and in turn us that we would be sanctified, matured, that we would grow, that we would deepen in our faith, that we would pursue holiness, that we would be sanctified by the truth. Not necessarily our experiences, not our feelings, but the truth of God's word. Unity is the byproduct of being planted in Jesus through God's truth. That's how we become one. We are first planted in Jesus through his word. This is to say that the word and the promises of God in Christ are our foundation. That's what allows the roots of our faith to grow deeply and strengthen in maturity. In John 15, I don't think this is up on the slides, here's what Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So he's talking about that unity, that union that we have with him. And so in order for the church to pursue and proclaim unity, you and I must first be planted in Jesus. 
And that's the key word, right? In. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ because of his work for you. You are in Christ, which means the Spirit of God is at work in you. You have been restored. You have been redeemed. You are being made more like Jesus. Unity begins with our union to Christ through his work and word. And so as we've been talking about prayers, here's just a couple of things to think about. In our prayers, do or in your prayers, do you plant yourself in Jesus or simply in your requests? Do you plant yourself in Jesus so that the roots of your faith grow in the word and promises of God for you? Do you plant yourself in Jesus so that the roots of your faith mature because Jesus is better than anything else that you and I are tempted to turn to when it gets difficult? Do we drink deeply from the water of his word? Unity is a byproduct of being first planted in Christ. That's the first observation. The second observation is that unity is to be pursued with one another. And we're going to see this progressive overload happen. So there's unity that begins with us being planted in Christ. And now there's unity is to be pursued with one another. Jesus continues. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me. What does it look like for the church to pursue unity? Let's begin with what unity isn't. If we are to be one, if we're gonna pursue one another for the sake of unity because of our union to Christ, we need to understand what unity isn't. Here's one thing that unity is not, and that is uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity, where we look the same, where we dress the same, and simply throw our personalities out the door. That would defeat the entire purpose of things like gifts that God has given us and the uniqueness that we have because of his goodness to us. But unity does mean, at the very minimum, and we're going to look at this minimally, I think, maybe, unity does mean family and service. It means family and service. To pursue one another is to be a family and to serve one another. As a church, we are the family of God adopted by the grace of God. And because of that, there are positive, or should be, positive implications. A family pursues one another by loving one another, serving one another, discipling one another, spending time with one another, and carrying one another's burdens. To the disciples, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, the way they love one another, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I want to highlight just a couple of things 
that as the family of God, actually, let me back up. I want to highlight a couple of things, but once more, I want to remind you, I get it that it could be messy, and I get it that there are some other factors that we might have to navigate, so we're just looking at this plainly. And the first one is that I wanted to highlight is that we bear one another's burdens. And what that means is that we willingly and lovingly step into one another's mess for the sake of uh, serving one another, for the sake of getting us out of our sin, for the sake of pointing one another to the Lord Jesus. Jude says it this way, that we save others by snatching them out of the fire. To snatch someone out of the fire, to snatch someone out of their sin, means that I'm willing to step into your life to pull you out of that that it's gonna cause me grief and inconvenience? Yes, because the sake is to point one another to Jesus, that we bear one another's burdens. The second thing it means as a family is that we build one another up. This is where we give one another encouragement. One of the things that Paul tells the Colossians is that we proclaim Christ, teaching, warning everyone so that we would present one another as mature. We wanna build one another up with encouragement. We wanna build one another up with exhortation. We wanna build one another up even in rebuke, you know, when it gets really uncomfortable, right? When it, gets, when it gets really uncomfortable, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where there's a lot of rub, right? Because everybody wants to be spiritual, but nobody wants to be godly. And so we build one another up in encouragement and exhortation, even in rebuke. We build one another up in the context of community, spending time together. And, and, and let me just say this. Y'all do an amazing job of hanging out together. Miguel and I, if you don't know him, he's in the back working on the slides. Um, Miguel and I were working on things within community groups. And we wanted to see, at the end of this past semester in May, we wanted to see the percentage of covenant members, right, in our church, the percentage of covenant members that are actively involved in a community group. This is not including people who are in groups who do not attend our church, This is not including people who are not covenant members yet. These are individuals in our member directory that we're just curious about. We just wanted to see where we'd land. And so we began talking with group leaders. We began asking a bunch of variety of questions. And normally, now I get this that we're a smaller church, but nevertheless, normally, statistically, a healthy group life, being active in a community group, Bible study, small group, so on, being active in a community group, statistically, uh, about 40 to 45% of your members is healthy. That's considered healthy in the American church, right? Of our covenant members, it was 85% of our members are involved in community group. That's excluding people who are in groups that don't attend our church. That's excluding people who are in groups that are not members yet. Like y'all do awesome at community. So praise God for that. That is something to celebrate. That's a big, big deal, which means that you're growing in friendship together, which means that you're beginning to be shaped by rhythms of life together. But at the same time, 
One of the benefits of community group isn't just that, or community or small group, one of the benefits isn't just that we're pointing each other to Jesus, right? In community, we actually combat apathy. Why? Well, because we're actively getting in one another's lives. That doesn't mean we have all the answers, but we're at least getting in one another's lives. It actively means that we're pursuing one another, whether it's through encouragement or exhortation. It means at the very least, you and I value relationship. So praise God for that. Good job, Sorehouse. <laughs> what does it mean to pursue unity with one another? It means that we actually live out the role of a family, that we're actually in it together. But that also means that we serve one another. My mom used to tell my brothers and I this all of the time. She would say, there is no maid in this house, which meant everybody had chores. There was always one way or there was always some ways in which we were gonna be serving one another. And so it's not just that we hang out together, it's also that we serve one another. And so one of the things or one of the areas that I wanted to talk about is specifically putting your gifts on the table to serve one another in the context of the gathering. And so here's, I love you, here's this exhortation on serving in and among the church. Let me do it with this. You thought I was gonna say something profound, but here we go. Let me actually reference 1 Peter 4 first, and then we'll get to it. Here's what Peter says. As each has received a gift, we could say like as you have received a gift, use it to serve one another. Here it is, as God's stewards. He didn't say so that you would be a good steward so that you would become steward-like. No, as a good steward. It's who we are. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as to one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. All of us, has at least one gift, at least, right? I remember when I first became a Christian and I had no idea what gifting meant, and I remember my pastor asked me, what do you think your spiritual gift is? And I said, I like living, lifting heavy stuff. He's like, boom, lift these speakers, right? Everybody has at least one gift, okay? So that, that's just, let's just be very clear about that. So here's where I want to encourage, here's where I want to push and even exhort many of you. See, some of you, and I get that we can have a lot of sub-points to this, but some of you squander your gifts because, well, you've just done it all before. In other words, you don't serve in the context of our local church. We're not going to be broad and say like, oh, you don't serve in the church. No, you don't serve in the context of our local church because your reasoning is, well, I've just done it all before. Now, there might be some things where maybe you had a hard season, maybe you've been burnt out, maybe you've had some hard experiences. I'm not knocking that. And I'm also not talking to those. There are those who just say, man, I've just done it all before. So I'm just going to pull back. Some of you don't use or exercise your gifts simply because you have other priorities. Now, again, a lot of subpoints. You could say things like, oh man, uh, the kind of job that you have, the kind of season that you're in. Cool, I hear you. This may not be for you. But it's those who simply prioritize something else over the body and over Christ. 
Some of you don't exercise any of your gifts because it's just inconvenient to you. The question in exercising your gift is, what do I get in return? Some of you don't exercise your gifts in the context of our church or the local church simply because you believe that someone else will do it. And there's this random statistic, I don't know if it's just a saying or a statistic where it's 10% of the church does 90% of the work, something like that, y'all heard that before? So what happens when those 10% are burnt out and beat up? Because that 10% does exist in our church. What happens when they're burnt out and they're beat up? Are we or other leaders or those who serve in the church, are we going to have to negotiate with you in hopes that you might say yes, trying to convince you to serve brothers and sisters? That's not really serving as a steward. Because now we've got to make negotiations, now we've got to make these contracts, all because 10% of your brothers and sisters are getting slammed. In fact, there are key leaders in our church who serve in multiple areas of ministry, who are throughout the week working nine to five jobs and switching gears every single day because of the ministries that they serve in, because by God's grace and many of their faithfulness, a lot of those ministries, particularly in our smaller gathering ministries, those ministries are growing. And what I don't want to do, right, what I don't want to do is load them up with more responsibility just because they're growing. But it's also not sustainable if we're looking at it practically. Our kids' ministry, by God's grace, is growing. That means we need teachers. We need individuals who are going to come alongside of parents to help them as they disciple their kids in curriculum that is gospel-centered. We're about to start at some point, we're working through the details, like our student ministry, because there's about four to five uh, kids going into junior high or who are already in junior high, and that's this school calendar and the next school calendar, it goes from that four to five to like 10 to 12, right? And if we just consider the kind of life that they're gonna have in our church, we have what they need as they engage the world, and that is the gospel, and that's for the next seven years, right? Sixth, seventh, eighth grade, ninth through 12th. So that's growing Groups are growing. Love that we have 85% of our members in groups and a few of our groups are like maxed out. Like when everybody shows up, it's like 30 adults and 20 kids, right? Like a lot of our groups are maxed out. When it comes to the Sunday gathering, do we realize that when someone opens the door for us, if you're a visitor or when you were new, that was actually your first experience of the gospel, someone giving you a smile, hooking you up with coffee, people who pray for you because of the cards that are submitted, and yet regularly when it comes to something like that, it's someone else is going to do that. And so let me just tell you, because I know some of our leaders have said stuff, there is 10% of your brothers and sisters that are getting burnt out and beat up, and we're not even in August. And it has nothing to do with the weather, maybe a little, but still. 
See, when we serve one another, or better yet, and if you don't know, right, there's some of you who are like, I actually don't know even where to start, right? I didn't even know that there were these needs. Here's your sign. Here is your sign. There are needs. When we serve one another, we honor God and our trust in one another increases because we're not serving independently of one another. We're serving interdependently together. When we serve one another and that trust for one another increases, we are sanctified because we encourage one another. We push one another. We listen to one another. We help mature one another. We are rested. Other individuals get to take a quick break. We are equipped. Some who step up to the plate who need to be equipped as teachers and leaders and so on. Are we praying for the pursuit of unity in our personal prayers? That we would be both convicted and challenged to pursue one another, but also empowered to serve in something that is greater than ourselves as an individual. Do our prayers consist of that? Unity pursued strengthens the church in our union with Christ. Third, unity in the church is to be a proclamation to the world to be a proclamation to the world. In other words, the pursuit of unity isn't just for us, it is essential for our mission. Going back to the text, Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, here it is, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then fast forward to verse 23, I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you have loved me. Those two statements are purpose clauses. In other words, he's giving you the purpose. He's telling you, hey, when you are uh, in union with Christ and when you pursue unity with one another, what that does is that it communicates, it proclaims something about me to a watching world. The world consists of those who do not know Jesus. The world consists of those who reject Jesus in, and his word. And so when you and I pursue unity with one another, it's a proclamation to a watching world because they're going to see something different about Christians. They're going to see something different about the church because it's a testimony of Jesus. Unity proclaims a message about Jesus except when we respond like the world. See, when you and I respond like we're in the world, then, then our proclamation to the world says that Jesus really isn't worth following all that much. So for a moment, consider your texts with other Christians or with one another. Consider your social media posts and the kinds of things that you do post. Consider even in the depths of your own heart how you view other Christians and your thoughts about them even in the church. Do you respond? Are you responding like the world? In Leviticus 19, God writes this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, 
lest you incur sin because of him. Did you catch that? The opposite of hatred towards brothers and sisters, the opposite of hatred isn't just get along, right? There's always that individual, can't we all just get along, right? The opposite of hatred isn't that. The opposite of hatred is reasoning with one another coming to one another and frankly reasoning, putting things on the table so that we can address them for the sake of uh, Christ, for the sake of pursuing one another, and for the sake of a watching world to see. When Jesus is praying that the world may see that you, Father, have sent me and that you have loved me, Jesus is saying that the credibility of the gospel, check it on this, the credibility of the gospel in the world depends on how you and I treat one another. Did you catch that? The credibility of the gospel is dependent, the credibility of the gospel in the world is dependent on how you and I pursue one another, on how you and I treat one another. In verse 22, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The word glory, we looked at this last week, means the excellence and radiance of God. And, and what Jesus is praying and Jesus is saying here is that this glory has been imparted to the church. That the church now manifests the wonderful works of God. That people on the outside should look upon our unity and say, that's how awesome God is. Jesus must be real. Could he love me like that? When we respond like the world, we bring reproach and discredit to the gospel because we're testifying more about what we want rather than Jesus. There's this term, I don't think it's too uh, unique, but there's this term that's used particularly within the military, and it's called uh, inter-service rivalry. And this is seen even in sports teams. <clears throat> and inter-service rivalry is when there is not just competition, but there is hatred within military branches, like within our own military branches. And so one example of this, there's tons of examples. <clears throat> one example of this is as, a, as building up to, to World War II, there was this long uh, discord between the Imperial Japanese Army and the Imperial Japanese Navy. <clears throat> and so both had different goals, and you could read up on that when you want, but both had different goals, and so what started off as just not liking one another, eventually it built to not helping one another and not sharing information. Eventually this not liking one another built up to hatred, so much so that there were assassinations taking place within this uh, inner conflict of the military branches. And one scholar goes on to say, they truly hated each other more than they hated their enemy. If our enemy is Satan and the world is enchanted and leveraged by him and we're responding like the world, are we saying that we hate one another more than we hate Satan? In our prayer, do we pray for our unity to proclaim 
God's grace and his goodness to a people in need of grace and who are in the process of maturity, unity is essential to our mission. We proclaim something about the person and work of Jesus to a watching world by the way we treat one another. And so with that being said, there are threats to unity in the church. And so I want to give you one, and we're going to look at how it might play out itself differently, but we're just going to look at one. One of the biggest threats to unity is prayerlessness, a lack of prayer, the absence of prayer, a void of prayer, corporately and individually. See, prayerlessness, when it becomes a culture in a church, leads the church to apathy. Leads the church to apathy. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've been feeling apathetic. You've been feeling apathetic as an individual. You've been feeling apathetic even within the context of our church. Well, it it comes out in certain ways, and it could be the result of certain things. One of them could be that you're simply settled in your sin. That there is sin in your life that is unconfessed. There is sin in your life that is habitual. There is sin in your life that... um, that you're living out knowing that you've compromised the truth. There is sin in your life that has gone unaddressed. Yuji Anzor, he's a, he's a pastor and a writer for Desiring God, says it this way, <clears throat> if we sow to satisfy our sinful desires, we should not be surprised to find ourselves feeling distant from God. He wrote a wonderful book called Overcoming Apathy, wonderful resource if you want to check it out. But oftentimes, the church has grown apathetic because many in the church simply are walking in seared sin. And what I mean by seared sin is it has become normative. You are unmoved and unconvicted by sin. Another reason prayerlessness might take place is because as a church, we've settled in our preferences. We've settled for comfort rather than conviction. We've settled for convenience, right, rather than service. You have all these preferences, and how do you know you have these preferences? You have a ton of opinions about what should be done in the church, and yet you aren't part of the solution. That's one of the ways in which it could happen. One of the ways in which you know that maybe you're settled in your preferences is by considering what fills your mind, or what is it that you filled your mind with? Right, to the Colossians, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. What is it that you're filling your mind with? All right, if we're products of what we listen to, then what is it that you're listening to? What is it that you're filling your mind with that has now become more about your preference rather than proclamation? Finally, Prayerlessness happens when we become settled in our passivity. And this kind of bleeds into the other ones, right? For example, if we go with unconfessed sin, if we go with habitual sin, if we go with compromise, oftentimes, not always, these might be generalizations, oftentimes our hearts become bitter. 
Our hearts become bitter and apathetic because now what has taken root or what is taking root is unbelief, hardness of heart. And the reason this is taking place is because we are drinking deeply from the waters of compromise. Right? Rather than finding our union or being planted in Christ and drinking deeply from the well of his word, we are drinking deeply from the cistern of compromise. These are all real threats, and, and maybe you're experiencing one of them, two of them, all of them, but these are all real threats and disruptions to our church. And when these threats are greater than our testimony, then we've gone wrong somewhere. But there's good news, though. And isn't that the beauty of God's word? It doesn't just leave you where you are. There is good news because though you and I are experts in being prone to wander, there is one who didn't wander. He is the one who, even in our disruptions, gives us grace and forgiveness. He's the one that empowers us to push darkness back so that we would be the light of his beauty and glory. And in case you didn't know, that's Jesus Christ that the blood of Christ has willingly been spilled so that we, by his grace, have been redeemed, bought out of our bondage to sin. Jesus' resurrection means that our death and sin are buried and left in the grave, that Jesus' grace and truth now covers us through the Spirit so that we would be empowered and enabled and encouraged to pursue and proclaim unity even when you and I drop the ball. And that the moment that we're living in right now is according to his mercy and our lives are hidden in him, meaning that we are secured by him and able to pursue unity, encouraging one another to fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus and proclaiming the beauty and excellency and majesty of his glory and his grace to a watching world. Jesus knew exactly what he was praying for in John 17. And though he's praying for you and I, he's also encouraging us, hey, you can do this. You can do this. So Christian, where do you forfeit unity? Where are you forfeiting unity? What has your attention more than Christ Where is it that you're struggling with? Has, has bitterness and apathy consumed you? Let me, let me invite you to repent. Turn away. Fill, begin to fill your mind with the truth of God for you. If, if unity begins with being planted in Jesus, then it is because of his truth. Turn to him, experience his grace, experience his forgiveness. And if you're not a Christian, welcome to our church. We're all recovering hypocrites, serving a perfect redeemer. Our church is not perfect, but our Christ is. And he's the one that we look to. He's the one that you can know. See, non-Christian, you stand condemned before God, estranged with God, at war with God, as an enemy to God. However, he has made a way for you to know him 
through his son, Jesus Christ, who entered into time, space, and history, lived the life that you and I can't live, die a death that you and I deserve, and freely offers us a grace that you and I cannot earn. And he pardons any sinner who turns to him in faith and repentance. Church, unity is not a preference. It is a proclamation that is essential to our mission. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and gracious God, a patient and loving Father, one who loves us infinitely, and this is best shown in the sending of Jesus for us through his life, his death and resurrection. Father, we are united to you through Jesus and the truth of your word. Forgive us when we forget your word and fill our minds with other things that keep us from you. Forgive us when we forfeit unity with one another because of our sin, because of our preferences, or because of our passivity. Forgive us when we falsely testify the glory of Jesus to the world because of our own selfishness. Today, Father, give us the grace to plant ourselves in your truth, to pursue one another today, and to proclaim the beauty of your word and and your glory to a watching world. As we come to the table, may this not only be a reminder of what Jesus has done for us, but may it be the encouragement that we need. The encouragement that we need from you to pursue unity with one another as those reconciled to you through Jesus, as those dependent on your grace in our lives.